the Anchored series. I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, the folks will be passing out Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There are two epistles. The word epistle means letter. There are two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He actually references a third letter that got lost somewhere. Um, don't know where that one is. But uh, First and Second Corinthians, uh, actually First Corinthians is one of my favorite epistles uh, of all the letters Paul's written. And, and he's, he, we're going to cover it momentarily about uh, this church because the church at Corinth was, um, they put the fun in dysfunction. Uh, it, was a, it, was, <laughs> it was a real messed up church. Um, so uh, I'm going to segue into it. I was tremendously blessed, uh, as always, that as we're going through the Anchored series, the passage always tends to minister to me through the course of the week and the illustration God gives me. Uh, and I open up the passage and I'm like, gosh, Lord, you're remarkable the way you do that. Uh, tremendously blessed. I want to share with you a couple of really wonderful things. And, and I'm going to preface it by saying this, that um, when I was kind of a newly minted minister um, and, and working endless hours and we had young kids uh, and life was hectic, uh, we were broke and, and busy. And uh, I, I'd, I'd come home exhausted and Michelle uh, would want me to recount the entirety of the day. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm like, honey, I'm out of words. And uh, she hasn't used any of hers. And so... <laughs> Um, and, and I used to just kind of resent it and regret it, uh, and, and I'd, I'd get irritated. Like, I'm tired. I, I just, I, I, I did it. I don't want to relive it, you know, and, and, and the Lord showed me, uh, Rob, you're doing what you're doing because she's doing what she's doing, and she has every right to all the details because it's as much hers as it is yours, and it was a huge perspective change and a Holy Spirit head slap, um, yeah. <laughs> And so what I, I started learning is I get to the threshold of the door, no matter how tired I am, I can hear the kids screaming in the background. And, you know, I know I'm going to come in and find her disheveled and just exhausted and, you know, shock on her face. And, um, and I just stop and I pray, Lord, make this the best part of my day and, and, and uh, give us a chance to talk. And, and I, I literally would sit, you know, and, and so she'd run out of questions. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm now... 32 years in this marriage, I still have not perfected that. I still get times where, you know, uh, can you just give me a minute? I, I don't really want to do this right now, you know. Um, but I, I came to realize that as, as she's at home cleaning up high chairs and vomit and dirty diapers, um, and I'm out doing what I'm doing, she wants to know what we have accomplished and how the Lord has used us. And, and, and I... I, I was really blessed by that idea that that's the best part of my day because um, we do it together. So the reason why I have long introductions when I come, a lot of you are like, why does he talk so much at the beginning? Let's get into the word. Can you just stop asking the question and get over it? Because <laughs> we'll get to the word, you know. Um, the, the long introduction, introductions are real simple. I do what I do because you do what you do. And you have every right to hear of what's been accomplished because it's just as much yours as it is mine. And I, I want you to know what you have been used to accomplish. Um, and and I, how grateful I am to each and every one of you. So, um, as you know, we had the, the pastor's summit in Coronado, California, the Lowe's Resort. 
we wanted to have, we were going to do it for 250 pastors. We thought that'd be a stretch to get a room full on our very first go around. We ended up having 510 people. It was remarkable. Uh, the lineup was exciting, and we got a lot of pushback because we featured at a pastor's conference, a pastor's summit, our, one of our headline speakers was an atheist. Uh, and Christian Research Network, you know, put it on the front page, Charlie Kirk and Turning Point Pastor's Conference uh, headlines an atheist. Like, ooh. And then I got a couple of letters. I think I read you one of them uh, where, the, you know, a sweet couple reached out saying, I can't believe that you do this. And my response was, do you, do you apply the same principles to the pilot that flies your airplane, that they must be a Christian? Do you apply the same principles to your surgeon? Or do you want the best surgeon and the best pilot? And I said, uh, Dr. James Lindsay is the foremost uh, authority on critical race theory. And, and his work is cited by every other author who's taken on this topic. And he's remarkable. And he stays in his lane. And they gave me all these scriptures that didn't pertain to anything regarding Dr. Lindsay. And to their credit, this sweet couple wrote back and they were very gracious in their response. And I have to tell you, Dr. Lindsay was a game changer uh, it, was, it was deer cotton headlights for these pastors. They were blown away, taking copious notes. And uh, he was so good at it. And he, he was quoting principles of scripture that most pastors didn't know. Because he's, he's a voracious reader and he's, he's read the Bible. Um, and he's, he's moved from being an atheist to an agnostic because he believes in absolute truth. I was telling him up there that his name's Jesus. And, um, <laughs> and so, uh, and then I, I read out loud in front of all the pastors, the letter I'd written to the couple um, in defense of Dr. Lindsay and talking about how I believe he's very close to Christ. I'm reading this in front of him uh, and he's, you know, smiling. He's just, he's a precious man. And the, the conference went very well. Uh, it was a tremendous conference and it was an eclectic gathering. You had swinging from the chandelier charismatics, five point Calvinists, and, and then in between, you know, Lutheran backwards collar kind of thing. And uh, it was the island, as I called it, of misfit toys. And, uh, and it was just a great, great summit and things they'd never heard before and well-equipped for uh, what we're facing as the future is uh, coming and attacks on you know, religious freedom, freedom of the press, the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech is, is under attack. And, and these, these pastors started to understand the gravity of it and they're equipping themselves and preparing for it. The other thing that was uh, intriguing to me is that as these pastors started to grasp this, and, and put two and two together, and we, we saw them responding uh, to it. Um, Victor Marx, who I adore, uh, you, you know him, he's the guy that has the Belgian Malinois, um, and he rescues uh, human trafficked uh, victims out of war-torn areas of the world. Maybe you don't know him, he's spoken here, I thought he maybe left an impression on you. Yeah. So, so Victor is, he's a warrior. And I always say, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and and he, he came out guns blazing uh, and, and uh, kind of called out pastors and the thing. And, you know, a few of them were coming to the summit and they, they weren't really up for naming names. And they were, uh, some of those guys that he was naming were their friends. And we're trying to build a coalition, you know, and, and, uh, and Victor meant well. And he, he, was, he was doing the right thing the wrong way, in my estimation. And I, he's not the guy I want to have to correct because he can kill me a thousand different ways. Um, and and I, I actually didn't hear the full context of his message. I just heard from others. 
But it was, uh, it, it was Sunday morning early, and um, I, I don't go on social media, it, seldom if ever. Uh, if, if I'm responding to uh, your, your posts on social media, someone else is writing it but checking with me what they've written. Um, so I, I am involved in that capacity, but I'm, I just don't do it. I just don't do social media. But I opened it this day, and the only thing I saw was Victor's post uh, from the pastor summit talking about one of the pastors that was there. Uh, who had approached him privately, and he kind of publicly did this thing, and, and I was burdened by it, and at 2 o'clock, 2.20 in the morning, I, I had to do, the Lord put on my heart, I uh, wrote him a real response, and, and to his, it didn't surprise me, I knew he would respond accordingly, he took the post down, he was very gracious, he's, he's, a, he's a teachable, uh, wonderful man, um, and, and I knew uh, and he's going to be an integral part of all this. So I knew I had to go out and talk to him. Charlie asked me to go out. So uh, I left San Diego. I was up there with my wife vacationing. Left San Diego, flew over to Phoenix uh, yesterday, and then flew back just to meet with, with Victor. And we sit down, and he's all, uh, is this a beat down? You know, like he's thinking something's coming down. I go, no, it's not. Nobody's getting canned. Nobody's getting fired. Uh, I just, I said, I, I, we just have to recalibrate. And I, I said, you know, there's not a pastor in the country who can survive scrutiny. Um, everyone has feet of clay. And you dig deep enough, you're going to find dirt on everybody. Just that simple. But the scripture says, and I said, are you familiar with 1 Timothy 5? And he, he says, yeah, well, I said, if you bring an accusation against an elder, you have to come with two or three witnesses. And the term in the Greek means your testimony will hold up in a court of law with the amount of of uh, evidence that you bring forward. And that's just for the accusation itself. And, and the goal is, is to win your brother and to make him aware of it. And then if he doesn't respond, the, the, the requirements to bring an accusation are high for a pastor. But if, if those requirements are met, the punishment for the pastor is higher than for anyone else. He is publicly chastised and brought before the entirety of the congregation, which just you know, implodes his life and it's not pretty. And, and Victor said, I wanted to create a clearinghouse where people could, because he sees child abuse, he sees molestation, and, and he sees these victims, and he knows that it's, it happens in the church, and he wants to protect the victims, and I love that about him. I said, I don't necessarily know that clearinghouse is the way to do it, where can, someone can level it, and you can say, you got 30 days to respond, and will you take a lie detector test? I'm like, dude, don't. We're not gonna, there's not going to be a pastor on the planet that's going to want to participate in any of that. And you guys aren't laughing, and that's bothering me a little bit. <laughs> I remember one time there was a guy that was an alcoholic and, and we were going through uh, kind of a, a, a program at the church in San Jose and, and he had relapsed and he went to the doctor and they gave him medication that if he drank, he'd throw up. And, uh, and Pastor Don McClure, the senior pastor, uh, was there and we were giving him the update on him, uh, the, the fellow that was recovering. And, and one of the assistant pastors made the bright comment. They said, wouldn't it be neat if they could develop that type of a, of a of a drug that you would throw up every time you sinned. And Don goes, no, you know, like, everybody in the room would be like, and some people right now go, well, that's not me. Well, you, you'd be like, oh, I guess it is. The only good thing in all of us is Jesus. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And I said, Victor, you know, um, yeah, it's true that Turning Point has a, a professor's watch list. 
and that they have um, a school board watch list. But to do a, a minister's thing, there's one problem with that. And he goes, what's that? I go, the church is the bride of Christ. And I said, nobody uh, defends their wife better than you do on social media. And I love the way you do it. And I've, I've seen people comment on it when folks send me things. And I said, um, the Lord's real good at defending his bride. And uh, you don't need to be the Holy Spirit on that one. And and there's secret sins, private sins, and public sins. And the circle of sin is a circle of repentance. And God is more concerned with his reputation than he is with the pastors. And if, if that pastor doesn't come around and get it, he's, he's more than willing to let it just be laid bare before all eyes to see. And we've seen that happen. I said, instead of calling out guys by name, describe the pain of the victims and the systems within the church that allowed that kind of a culture for that abuse to occur. Because God has outlined in the pastoral epistles, and including Matthew 18, uh, a system that really, if, if applied, protects the vulnerable. But the problem is we don't apply it because we don't know it. And I said, instruct them on that. And then talk about elders and transparency and the, and the critical nature of it because pastors want to take uh, 1 Timothy 5 and use that as a cloak of camouflage to be able to hide because the accusation requirements or the, the witness requirements are so high that they kind of take advantage of it. And I said, you know, if you instruct elders and, and pastors on how to do that, it'll, it'll be far more effective than playing whack-a-mole and, um, you know, being judge, jury, and executioner. Because it, it's going to be contrary to trying to um, build up pastors when everyone's just kind of scared of going. And some of the guys you're attacking, that's their friends. And you may get it wrong. And when you publicly go forward with it. And it was such a, a pleasant conversation that we both recalibrated and got it and left there just overjoyed. And I just said, you know, Victor, what's interesting to me is this is really the assembling of the island of misfit toys. I mean, the fact that you and I, we didn't even know each other. I didn't even know Charlie. And now we're seeing a room filled with pastors and these are guys that are standing in defiance of the tyranny in their different states and, and, and they come from every denomination possible. It just, just, just defies really what's happened in Christendom, at least in my lifetime, and it's fascinating. And I said, we get to be a part of that. And, and I, I was just so encouraged by Victor and, and to think, you know, at 57 years of age, just receiving and applying. And uh, I always, I, I told him, I said, the strength of a man is measured by the power he possesses that he doesn't use. And I said, Victor, you can kill me a thousand different ways. And you're one of the, the meekest guys. And the word meek means strength under control. You know, like the nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. He was God. It was his love for you and me. I mean, that's meekness. That's strength under control. He and because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It's a greater purpose. And, and I, I just saw the strength of that man. And, and he, had been, he had been tortured by his stepfather. And I, I don't know if you know the story, but what he endured was just, just vile. And, and I, <clears throat> I, I, I approached the subject by talking about a, a friend, David Lane, who was instrumental in me understanding all of these things. He's now in uh, Dallas, or Louisiana, and we've, we're separated simply because I'm working with Turning Point and our, our paths don't cross. Uh, but David Lane had a, a pretty rotten dad. His, his dad left him and his, his mom and his brother uh, and just took off, left him in a trailer in Oklahoma, and then ended up in Louisiana, Louisiana and married the uh, Miss Louisiana 
and uh, became the largest Chevy dealer in Louisiana and Chevy Hall of Fame and had you know, two kids, which were David's stepbrother and sister, and basically abandoned David. His, his biological brother, full brother, died of a drug overdose. David was the most wild man who ever lived. He lived in the bottom of the barrel and loved, loved it. And <clears throat> through the course of time, he came to Christ, and, and his life was turned around, and his father was dying, and he went to go see his dad. And, and his, his dad said to him, uh, he, he said, Dad, and this, David asked this of everybody. He says, uh, what can I do to help you? And, and he means it, because you tell him he'll help you. He goes, what can I do to help you? And his dad said to him, David, we have a good name. And the first time in his life, he turned to him, he says, I'm proud of what you're doing, I want you to carry on the name. He said, okay, dad. And he said, dad, I want to tell you about another name. And he segues into the name above all names, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved, Jesus. And he begins to tell his dad about the Lord. And on his deathbed, he leads his father to Christ. And then he's, he's asked to come to the reading of the will with his half-brother and half-sister. And it's insistent that he comes to the thing. It's written in the orders. He sits down and the will's opened and his father left him nothing. It tried to humiliate him. Before he'd come to Christ, he, he, you know, he'd obviously forgotten about the will. He didn't know, but he left him nothing. And, and, and David wasn't hurt by it because he gave his dad everything. And he had everything he needed. And I remember telling Victor this. I said, I said, Victor, I told David something one day. I said, you're the man you are. And the Bible says, it's, it's the only commandment of the 10 commandments that comes with a promise. It says, honor your mother and father will go well with you. You live long on the earth. And, and I, I said, um, you know, we don't get to pick the parents we get in this world, but we can pick the kind of parent we're going to be. And a lot of folks got gypped. I mean, you got just rotten folks, you, terrible parents. You don't even want to talk about them. I get it. They hurt you. And, and that's a growing number, it seems like. But you got to find some way to bless them and honor them. And you're like, whoa, that's not your area to be stepping in, Pastor. No, it's the Lord's. He owns it. And he commands it. And the way I can describe it is like eating a Costco chicken, a whole Costco chicken. You, you eat the meat and you spit out the bones. And for some of the parents that you have had in your life, there's, there's a lot of bones and very little meat, but you got to search. And I said, David, I know how you can honor your dad. He says, how's that? And I said, well, he was the anvil that made you one of the toughest men I've ever met. You can deal with rejection you find optimism in the most difficult of circumstances and you never give up. And you learn that from your dad because he was so brutal and you survived him. And as I was saying that, I said, Victor, your, your stepdad tortured you. And I know this is gonna be a stretch, but the ability you have to deal with traumatized victims of human trafficking and sexual abuse to go into the most war-torn areas of the world and deliver them and to empathize and sympathize was established in you by a man who sought to do evil and God used it together for good. Thank the Lord for that. You know, Churchill had a rotten dad. Randolph Churchill died of syphilis. His mother probably slept with every man in England. But he, he never said anything poor about his father. He just said, the greatest regret I have was that I couldn't serve with my father in parliament. 
Reagan's father was an alcoholic. They moved all the time because his dad could never hold down a job. His mother was a devout Christian. His father was, um, you know, he, he wasn't a practicing Catholic, but, but by, you know, heritage, he considered himself to be Irish Catholic. And uh, Reagan would come home and see his father face down in the snow, freezing to death, and would bring him into the house. And he never said anything poor about his dad. And, and whoever your parents are, figure out some way to do that. Honor them. Uh, you got to dig deep. You got to really look for some meat in there. But it does a couple things. It, it releases you from the prison of vengeance and anger. And let what they've done to you be put in the hands of the Lord. Go on with your life. Victor got it. He understood that mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and we're, we're all works in progress. And we're assembling this airplane while it's flying. And it's exciting to see as we're calibrating this, this move to speak into the lives of pastors that span denominational lines. And it's, it's beyond anything I've ever seen in the entirety of my life. And then I'll, I'll, I'll close with this introduction. Um, my sister and I, um, I've got three siblings that are all older than me, seven-year difference between my, the youngest and myself, and that's Gretchen. Um, my brother's a Baptist. My sister Nancy's an evangelical Catholic. Uh, my, my, my brother-in-law, Harry, is always trying to convert me to Catholicism. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, thank God I got married and, but then he goes, you can be an Anglican and then come in as a married Anglican. I'm like, give it a rest, man. <clears throat> I, I love Harry. I really do. And Harry was instrumental in my mom and dad coming to faith. But uh, my sister Gretchen is a left-leaning liberal lesbian. And uh, she was the, the one person who supported me when I left the industry to go into ministry. She loved the fact that I, I ventured out on my own and took a risk. She loved that. She was, the I think, the chief technology officer for the IRS and the senior executive vice president for Visa. And, and she's a smart gal. And uh, we'd had a falling out because we'd reconciled at one point. Um, and, then, and then Trump got elected. <clears throat> <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, is um, my sister nonchalantly on July 4th said, tomorrow Mo and I are gonna get married. And I said, well, you know, and I don't, I really, I don't care what you think of me when I say what I'm about to say because um, you'd be all things all men that you might win some and if you're present, you don't have to agree with it, but if you're present, uh, then you have the opportunity and the ability to speak into their lives. And I just, Michelle and I both said, well, we'll come to the, the ceremony. What, what time is it? Oh, no, 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 it's just to deal with, you know, financial and legal ramifications. It's, it's just a... It's, it's, it's nothing. You don't need to be there. Oh, okay. All right. Are you sure? No, yeah. Oh, we're sure. <clears throat> well, it's a setup. You know, why, why didn't you send, send us a <clears throat> wedding card or, hang on. <clears throat> I'm better now. <laughs> why didn't you send us a this and that? And I, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys said it was just a legal thing. And they, you know, and I, but I understood it was really special. It wasn't a setup. It was, it was almost like wanting to connect and, and, and um, but then things started getting distant. And then when Trump was elected, she thought she was going to be put in an internment camp. It's, no, and, and that, that's a fear that many across the country had this, it's like a national psychosis in some cases. There's, there's no middle ground, gray area with, you'd say the name Trump. It's either, you know, 75 million Americans adore him and, the, the remainder, we don't know who they are, but they're, 
but they, 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 he is, he is the devil incarnate. There's no area in there. And, and that name comes up and it just, it's like, you know, you put your finger with oil and the pepper moves to, I don't know how to describe it. Just, <clears throat> it, it's intense. And that's an area we can't go. And, and so, uh, she just says, I, I need to distance myself from you. You're, you're political and you're a Trump supporter and I don't know. So that ensued to a two or three year absence. And my nephew got married in Coronado. Michelle and I were there vacationing. I got back yesterday. Um, and, and Gretchen's there. And I go to the wedding. And there she is, my nephew, my uh, sister Nancy's son. He's a captain in the Marine Corps. He's a pilot. And he's getting married. I go to the wedding at the Catholic Church. There's Gretchen out front. She says, where have you been in the last four years? <laughs> I, go, I go, where I've always been. I've been waiting for you to call. I've texted you. I, 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 you left me. I didn't leave you. And she said, well, well, we'll talk about this later. And, uh, and she's sweet. And so we did. And we, we sat down and, and we said, let's go to dinner with all the siblings. And so we met, um, not last night, night before last. And, and it, uh, on uh, 2010, uh, August, what's the date today? Tw- is the date? 21st. So it was uh, uh, August 19th, um, 2010, my mom died. Um, and she was a force to be reckoned with. And so we're all sitting there kind of celebrating my mom and talking about how special the family was. And, and we reconciled at the table. And Gretchen said, why can't you, why can't you agree? Why, why do you have to consider what I'm doing is wrong? I, I, you, you don't accept this. And I go, Gretchen, you, you, you want, you, you're not going to extend to me that which you want for yourself. Why don't you do that with me? I said, this isn't a condition for me to love you. Why does it have to be a condition for you to love me? And we, we went toe to toe and it's kind of cool. And we, we came to an understanding and it was really precious. And I know every single person in this room has had to endure this through this medical apartheid. And, and every, every, every dinner table has this. There's certain topics that are taboo. And, and we were dancing around that at the dinner, just trying to avoid the landmines, but it, listen, it, it's, it's worth endeavoring for. Don't give up. And, and my sister and I had a really precious time. We're going to do it again. And I miss her. And she goes, you know, I've been listening to some of your sermons. <laughs> no, no. You know, third service can wait. Um, <laughs> you guys had to. I mean, it, she, when we were over at Lavery Court, she said she's coming to church, and it was kind of a surprise thing, the, the building that we were at before we occupied here. And I'm like, Oof. and and a lot of you know, I, I I don't throw out the net meeting. I don't I don't have an altar call and call for Christ a lot and raise your hands. It's just it's just not kind of what I do. I I kind of like watching people just come to faith naturally, and and I. I follow the book of Acts. I don't see them raising hands and doing the like. But I, I present the gospel. I present the way, the truth, and life and show you all that. But I think it's a personal thing. And sometimes I'll do it, but it's rare. And I'll certainly not do it if my sister's there. <laughs> and she shows up and, and it's as clear as the nose is on my face. God's saying, do it. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> and I, I, I was very nervous. And she was sitting about right here. And... Uh, and I, I, I started to kind of go that direction. And it was in obedience to what he was saying. I was nervous. I didn't want to. I, I'm not even good at it to begin with. 
And it was like an out-of-body experience. Listening to myself speak, I'm like, I gotta get a copy of this. <laughs> I, I was saying things I'd never said before. I mean, I'm like, that is so profound. <laughs> and, 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 and at the end, I say, you know, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you wanna receive Christ, raise your hand. And I, I'm just not even gonna look at her. And she's raising her hand and, and everyone's heads bowed, their eyes are closed. And I kid you not, this is, this is a wordless conversation we had. I'm like, no. And she's like, mm, yes. I'm like, no. And, and it, you know, it, it, she did. And it was sweet and it was a season where it was great. And then, you know, distance and, and it's a roller coaster in life. And then the reconciliation and, and um, she's coming around and, and, and people are worth endeavoring for. They're not the enemy, they're the opportunity. And, and folks may say, well, I can't believe you fellowship or associate or, look, I, if, if I was concerned with your voice, I would have gone into another profession. I, I, I listen to his, this is what I do. I didn't ask you to come, I'm not asking you to leave, but I'm gonna do what I gotta do. And I'll make mistakes. So will you. This is what I love about the, the book of 1 Corinthians because this church put the fun in dysfunction. <laughs> this church was so messed up. And, 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 and this is the last of it all as we begin to enter into the study. I told Victor, I go, Victor, typically pastors are guys that have dad issues. And they're all wounded. And they're not a pastor who's gonna survive scrutiny. We endeavor to lift them up and build them up and encourage them. And, and God's gonna protect his bride. We, we certainly don't wanna facilitate abuse. I mean, we, we've, got, we've got systems in place in this church where we've got cameras, we've got, you know, two people have to be with the children all the time. We, we go through all of it. There's always, my, the window's always open. It's an op, open window door. If I'm sitting, there's always somebody outside. We, we do all this stuff. And, and, and we've been doing it for years. And we follow these principles. We've even, we've even fired a pastor and, and, and did Matthew 18. And, and then we were restored. And you all remember Pastor Marty? Okay, four or five of you do. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do. He's like my dad. And then God worked it out and it was healthy. And churches operate that way. And so... All of this transpired, and as I'm going through Coronado, I'm with Pastor uh, Greg Denham and his wife, Stephanie, and they wanted to go to dinner while we were there. And Michelle and I purposed that we wouldn't do any appointments or any dinners with anyone. We were just gonna be together, and I was gonna turn off my phone, but we love these two, and they insisted, could you find time where we go to dinner? And we're like, all right. We go to dinner. And then they said, we parked in the residential area by the Hotel Dell, and I begin to give them a tour of the city I grew up in. I go, this is the house I'm raised in, and, and the 
Wizard of Oz was written in the attic of this, and that's uh, the owner of that one. His great grandfather wrote Jingle Bells, and uh, you know, and I just started going through this whole thing. I said, the house here, Admiral James Stockdale would come to our Christmas parties. His leg would <clears throat> was fused because of what he endured in the Hanoi Hilton, so we'd have to put him in an area where people wouldn't trip over his leg. Uh, at the party and he would wander the streets of Coronado because he had Alzheimer's and we'd take him back to his wife Sybil and um, and it was just that was my home growing up and, and here Captain James Stark lived here he bought the house from my parents his left arm was fused he had set it in the um, the bars of the cell in the Hanoi Hilton after he ejected out of his A6 and had a compound fracture and, and I used to work out with him. He was part of the Port Authority after he retired from the Navy as a captain. My dad said, never talk to him about Vietnam. Don't, don't do it. And, and I was running with him, and he was an Adonis of a man in great shape. I'd made the senior nationals. I was training. I hated running, and he'd take me running. And <clears throat> he'd, I'd always be behind him looking at him, and he had this horrific scar on his back where he could almost put a cup of water in it. And I just had to ask him. And I go, you know, Captain Stark, my dad said, I'm not supposed to ask you questions. And respectfully, sir, I, 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 I want to honor my dad, but I, I, I am so curious. And if you don't want to answer it, please, sir, no need to. That scar. Yeah. That's where they hung me on a meat hook in the Hanoi Hill. You know, you just nonchalantly. And, I, and I, I met him because back then you reached into a bag and you pulled out a bracelet of one of the POWs. And you wore that bracelet until they came home. Mine was Commander Stark. Well, my mother tracked her down and, it was, and, and, and found Mrs. Stark and started to bring her dinners, her and her daughter, befriended them. And they became lifelong family friends. And he came home and remembered the bracelet, and took it off and gave it to him. I didn't know what praying was, but I remember kind of throwing out a prayer. I didn't know who I was praying to. And, and, and as I'm walking through this island, I'm realizing all these things formulated. And, the, and, and, and then I told Greg, I said, this house on the left in this alleyway, that was Leela Dunn's house. And she was the most elegant woman. Every day she'd walk Orange Avenue and she was dressed to the nines. She's a lovely lady. She lived to be well over 100. And she would walk every day completely dressed. And, and I, was, I was a terror to that poor woman. I was just a rotten kid. And, and, and one day I see her walking on Orange Avenue. I'm older, I'm now ordained and I'm serving in the ministry. And I, I'm thinking, she's, her mind's gotta be gone, but I'm just gonna do it. And I walk up and I say, um, Mrs. Dunn, she goes, Rob, how are you? Uh, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, Mrs. Dunn. She says, you're a minister now. I said, how'd you know that? And she said, the Lord told me. She said, I've been praying for you since uh, I first met you. God's ways are not our ways. He is, his processes are baffling. And faith is the ability to trust him in the midst of all that's happening. And this passage of scripture is one that Paul's speaking to, to a church that is assembled in a city that makes San Francisco look like an Amish village. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll read out loud. You can follow along silently. First Corinthians chapter one. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you. And by the way, they, they put Paul at the beginning because they were always on scrolls and you wouldn't know who wrote the letter until you unraveled the whole thing. So they begin with the name at the front. So you're like, okay, I'll read it. <clears throat> Verse four, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as a testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you... Come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, I am Calvary Chapel. <laughs> Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. That's a great name. <laughs> Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That doesn't mean we'd be stupid. It just... Let's not be enamored with what, what we think we're so profound when God's ability is far greater than our own. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's out of Jeremiah 9. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. It's the same today, just different categories. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God, listen, because the foolishness of God, pay attention to this, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Illustration is right here behind this stand. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world the punk who used to torment Leela Dunn. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
And the base things of the, of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things which are. That no flesh, and this is the point, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories. Let him glory in the Lord. And God, we ask just that. We're here to honor you and glorify you, that you would take the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And your foolishness is greater than the wisdom of man, and your weakness is greater than the strength of man. And so, Lord, please, I pray that you would bless. As there are even folks here now who consider the preaching of the crucifixion to be foolishness. They're not my enemy. We just pray that the veil would be lifted, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. We pray that all would come to a saving knowledge of you. But nobody in this room saves except for you, Lord Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by you. And so we lift up your name. We honor you. Holy Spirit, please, do what no man in this room can do. Seek and save that which is lost. We thank you for reconciling us, for paying the price that separated us from our God as you bled and died upon that cross of Calvary. You were buried and resurrected and you overcame the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, please. What is the foolishness of God? What is the foolishness of God? It's divine wisdom demanding faith. Faith is believing in things unseen, but taking God at his word. It's difficult to do. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Any man who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is required. There are things you can know about God. The laws of nature and nature's God. There is a designer. There's rhyme and reason to the universe itself as scientists seek to understand it. They come to see the hand of a designer. Those who seek to dismiss any type of a, of a being that they must be submitted to that would be greater than themselves and their ego manufacture and maintain systems that are so far-fetched and convolute themselves. And, and their, <clears throat> their wisdom is foolishness. They, they defy science for the sake of of writing their own rules to the detriment of generations to come. And yet God in his patience, he intends to save mankind. And how does he do it? Through the death of a crucified Jewish carpenter. That just, that's, just, that's just bizarre. That's foolishness. 
Paul writes this to the church at Corinth for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Some of you in here are, you just, you have no patience for this. And I, I'm sorry that, that somebody drug you here. I, it happened to me, so I empathize with you. <laughs> but just give it some time. The unexamined life isn't worth living, Aristotle said. At least look at it objectively and test it instead of dismissing it without even hearing it. Please, make your time worthwhile. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise, where's the scribe? And it just seems right now that stupidity has embraced the national psychosis of this nation. You, you, you have to get the vaccine. Why? Because you'll, you'll, you'll cause sickness for everyone. But if the vaccine works, why are you worried about me? Well, it'll lessen the severity of what you will get. So is it a vaccine? Yes. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He was referring to Jeremiah 9, where he writes, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. And Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth. It is a very active seaport. It's sandwiched between two major seas, Aegean and the Adriatic, I believe. You can see Athens on a clear day. But what's fascinating about this city is it was morally a mess. This is the ruins of there, oh, back, back, back. Here we go. That's the ruins of the temple of Aphrodite or Venus in the city of Corinth. Well, what does that mean? It's real simple. Take a look at this. The city of Corinth was the capital of Achaia, located 40 miles west of Athens on the narrow isthmus. And I don't have the picture, but connect, I, I will at the end, you'll see it. Connecting uh, Peloponnesus on the south and the northern mainland of Greece and all uses of Corinth. Corinth was located between the Aegean and Adriatic Seas and was a port city about five miles in circumference just south of the sharply rising 2,000-foot Acro-Corinth. Now pay attention to this. From which Athens could be seen on a clear day, the Temple of Aphrodite, in Roman mythology it'd be Venus, was located on the Acro-Corinth and housed a 1,000 temple priestesses employed as herodolai, herios consecrated to deity and doulos, which is a bond servant, who served as temple prostitutes to facilitate idolatrous worship. And, and the copious uh, historians wrote about this, but every woman that lived in Corinth was required to serve in the temple twice a year. And, and, and this was a sacred act that you were 
You were consecrated to the deity of Aphrodite and you were a servant, a bondservant, and you would ply uh, the trade of prostitution in the port city with all who would come to raise funds uh, for this goddess. <clears throat> it does wonders for a marriage. They didn't have the internet back then, they just had the real deal. You didn't just see images, you had bodies. And it was everywhere. Worship at the temple involved sexual encounters with these priestesses, and this attracted worshipers from all across the Roman world. It even recorded that the sandals of these notorious priestesses of Aphrodite were studded with an imprint that spelled out, follow me in the dust of the street. What a contrast with Jesus' call in Matthew 4.19 to follow me. One cannot help but think of similar seductive pictures found on the internet, even on seemingly innocent sites such as news pages. And you've seen that, you're like, oh. Okay, that didn't happen to you. Uh, <laughs> clearly, this illicit worship was a great temptation to the Christians at Corinth. Imagery everywhere, and men are visual. Just bam, everywhere, it's just... And, and, and this was Corinth. And, and you knew the woman. You knew she's coming up. Uh, it's, it's her season. She's got twice a year, and I've been tracking her. And, well, you know, I'm, I've got to help the temple. It's, the immoral condition of Corinth is vividly seen in the fact that the Greek term coined by um, Arist, 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 God, I always get this wrong, Aristophanes. Yes. And then I got to do the Corinthiazomai. It just simply meant to act the Corinthian. It came to mean to practice fornication. <laughs> well, they, seriously, they made San Francisco look like an Amish community. Uh, Elifro wrote, I did not enter Corinth after all, for I learned in a short time the sordidness of the rich there and the misery of the poor. Here's that map that I promised you earlier. You can see where it's located. This city was so messed up and the church begins to start there. You have a man sleeping with his father's wife in the church taking communion. They, they, they are, they, <clears throat> they have come so far away of what God intended the, 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 the act of sex for that it's an expression of intimacy, uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual where it, it just becomes self-indulgent. And, and, and gone is this idea of what God intended it for. And, and not, not to be prudes, but it, it just comes to the place where everybody's doing something that is just beyond that which creates intimacy. And nobody, nobody comprehends what God intends. God shows his bride, he says, the church is his bride. This, this idea that, that, that you, you, you have a connection to one another where one, one closes her eyes and the other falls asleep. I, my wife and I have been married 32 years. I can start a sentence, she can finish it, and vice versa. And I've told you this, that it's her birthday, she can be opening up a gift, and, and by the movement of her eye, I can, and the room's crowded, by the movement of her eye, I can tell she loves a gift or hates it, no one in the room will have a clue. It's intimacy. It's, it's the two becoming one flesh. And yet, <clears throat> that didn't exist. Everything was just self-indulgent and miserable. And then Christ steps into the midst of this heartache and the pain, 
And he's trying to build unity in a realm of complete dysfunction. And, it's, and he does it with the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God. Paul writes that term, it's brilliant. Dr. Walter Martin wrote of this passage, he said, <clears throat> the golden ages of Greece led the Greeks to Plato's philosophy, utter disaster, moral chaos, multiple polytheistic worship. They came up with a God for everything under the sun and one for the sun itself. Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite were the gods they conceived, yet they each had human characteristics, including sin, and could overcome and be overcome by humanity. The totality of man's wise efforts to find God ended up in divine bankruptcy. <clears throat> and to rephrase Paul's sarcastic words towards the ungodly, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom couldn't get itself arrested. It couldn't find out anything about God. The unexamined life isn't worth living and instead of seeking God, they made gods out of the things that possessed them. If you're a sexual deviant, you just, you just worship that and, and deify it. If you're an alcoholic, Bacchus, a god of alcohol. And then along comes the foolishness of God. What is the foolishness of God? Divine wisdom demanding faith. Trust me. Take me at my word. Test me. Noah, I want you to build an ark where there's no water. Preacher of righteousness for 100 years. That's faith. The ridicule for 100 years. They lived a long time back then. The only people who got on the ark were their family. They didn't have one convert. That ark didn't exist. It's all fairy tales. Okay. Why don't you go to Mount Ararat, find this massive structure that contains white oak infused with bituminous pitch in a radius where... It's 300 miles before you can find a single grove of any white oak. It's a mass there. Satellite photo. This is another picture of it. And another. It's not like it's not there. But you want to dismiss this and be because you had, you had a comparative religion course at community college and you are just... You're on top of the world. Look at you. Now the Bible is full of fairy tales. Abraham and Sarah. Approaching 100, she's in her 90s. You're going to have a child. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Divine wisdom demanding faith. The Bible says of Abraham that he believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. You want God to run by your standard you, I have questions for you. Take a number. Really? He holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You got a question for him. I mean, you're a gnat on the butt of an elephant. But what's fascinating about the Lord, what's fascinating about the Lord is he's patient with you and he wants to get you some answers. But you don't like the answers and you get frustrated with him. And then you tell him what you want and you don't get what you want because he knows it's not good for you. And then something tragic happens. And I remember this vividly in my own life. We're making a stand for the Lord. And I was telling Victor this when I described to him about the pastors that had, that had hurt me. And I don't want to recount the stories, but the, the pastor who discipled me led me to the Lord and ended up being the, the, 
the father of the child I thought was mine because he slept with my fiance. You want to talk about devastating. Uh, talk about a, a pastor that was a professor of Old Testament theology and teacher of the year. And I, had to, I got to work with him and he, pointing his finger in my chest and cussing at me and telling me I'll never be a minister and, and, and I should just give it up. You think, you know, that's, that's odd. But each of those men would be anvils and instruments that would, would make me who I am. That one minister that was a, a tremendous expositor of scripture imparted that to me. It's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. I could have been offended and written him off. I could have, I, I could have rejected the process of how God develops us. I could have never forgiven the man who discipled me and did what he did, but I, I, I owned what I did and cleaned up my side of the street and he ended up reconciling with his wife and resolved it. The baby is walking with the Lord, now a young lady, and the, the, the mom's doing great and got a PhD. His oldest daughter is the one that did the, ex, uh, the journalist who did the expose on Rick Warren being at Davos. It's it, groundbreaking uh, work. God doesn't give up. He loves to take broken vessels and make them more valuable than they appeared to be when they were whole. Mosaics are things God loves to work with. Divine wisdom demanding faith, a process. You have, you have Moses who thinks he's gonna get it done at 40 years of age. He's second in command of all of Egypt. He's, he's trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He's handsome in word and deed. And then God is like, no, no, we got another plan here. You're gonna spend 40 years in the backside of the Midian desert and then I'll call on you when you're 80. And then you're gonna confront Pharaoh and take on the greatest nation on the face of the earth with a bunch of stiff-necked Jews who are gonna to wanna to kill you in the process. And I'm gonna to talk to you through a burning bush. That's the foolishness of God. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And as the passage goes on in Romans 4, I love this portion where it just simply says in verse 21 and 22, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform, Abraham, and therefore it was according to him, according to him for righteousness. He took God at his word. God you can do it. I trust you. Imagine Joshua seven times around Jericho and then you're going to blow horns. That is not a battle plan. <laughs> Walls come down. That's the foolishness of God. Divine wisdom demanding faith. You say, well, those are Jews. Well, let's take a pagan. And Naaman 
dipping himself seven times in the Jordan. The Jordan, and they had the Bashan River, which was beautiful from where he was. In the Euphrates, it was stunning. But the Jordan, especially in that area, is nothing but a silty, muddy mess. It's just awful. It's like a creek. It's like, it's like the creek down here in Newberry Park. <laughs> seventh time he comes up, laden in, in, in leprosy, the seventh time he comes up, his, his skin is like that of a newborn baby. The foolishness of God, divine wisdom, demanding faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Anyone who comes to God must first believe that he is. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But God says the foolishness is the foolishness of the cross. I'm almost finished and I'll conclude with this. <clears throat> One of my great heroes of all time is George Mueller of Bristol, immigrated from Prussia, Germany, region to England as a complete pagan, comes to Christ after he destroys his father's income who wanted him to be educated. And he becomes a Christian. He spends the rest of his life taking care of orphans in Bristol. Hundreds of, or tens of thousands of orphans through the course of his lifetime. An annual budget of over 10 million in today's dollars. And he never asked for a dime. Never wrote a solicitation letter, but prayed. He has copious journals and, and, and the top three favorite books. This is number three in my life. You haven't read it, you need to. It's written by a man named A.T. Pearson. It's called George Mueller of Bristol. When Mueller died, he had an old coat and two silver spoons. Never wanted for anything. And I love this story and it's It's confirmed. I went to America some years ago with a captain of a steamer who was a very devoted Christian and went off the coast of Newfoundland. He said to me, the last time I crossed here five weeks ago, something happened which revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. We had George Mueller of Bristol on board. I had been on the bridge 24 hours and never left it. And George Mueller came to me and he said, Captain, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec Saturday afternoon. It is impossible, I said. Very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I have never broken an engagement for 57 years. Let us go down into the chart room and pray. Captain's like, what's this guy smoking? I looked at that man and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can that man have come from? I've never heard of such a thing as this. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and prayed one of the most simple prayers, and when he had finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. First, you do not believe he will answer, and second, I believe he has, and there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. <laughs> Next slide, can you help me? There we go. I looked at him, and he said, Captain, I have known my Lord 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get audience with the king. Get up, Captain. Captain. 
open the door and you will find the fog gone. I got up and the fog was indeed gone. And on Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec for his engagement. What is the foolishness of God that he intends to save mankind through the death of a crucified Jewish carpenter? Think of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. You'll rule in the midst of your enemies. This, this babe born in a manger to a humble family impoverished, uh, trained as a carpenter. But God taking the form of human flesh who rules with complete authority but humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross in your place and in mine. And the strength of a man is measured by the power he possesses that he doesn't use and do not think for a minute that nails will hold God to a cross. It was his love for you. Because the wages of sin is death and blood, blood must be shed for the remission of sin. He, he, he remained there for you to be reconciled to his father. Now that's foolishness. Requires humility to embrace it. Could be family tradition that keeps you. There could be a host of reasons, but who else has paid that price? It is cosmic treason. There is a God and you are not him. How will you be reconciled to God? There's no longer a temple. Blood must be shed. And that was a type because they said the sinless lamb of God. You see Isaiah 53. We know the fulfillment of all these prophecies that Christ has come to declare himself the Messiah. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I say this to all of you because as we prepare for baptism, that we're going to have to do in 34 seconds. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Absolutely kidding. But as we prepare for baptism, this Christian faith is so peculiar. Every other faith in the world is man trying to get to God by good works. And the beauty of Christianity is God moves the bullseye to where our arrow is and he imputes his righteousness to us. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty stinking good deal. You got a better one? Take it. But I know this. I haven't been on this earth 58 years like Mueller had been a Christian 58 years. Been on the earth or 57 years, I've been on the earth 58 years, not all of them is Christian. But the longer I walk with the Lord, the easier it is to trust him because he has never lied to me. He has never let me down. But the circuitous route he takes to accomplish these things is baffling. (laughs) And that's where Victor and I sat at that table yesterday we just looked at each other we thought Lord you have a remarkable way about you I remember walking with my sister 
Um, this week, and I'll close with this, I was walking with her and I, I went shopping with her as we're reconciling. It's just the two of us shopping in Vaughn's. It's on Orange Avenue. Next to Vaughn's was this five and dime store called Coromart. Zoned in the family for years and then they had a, an estate dispute and it sat vacant. But that store is very important to me. And as I walk into the Vons with my sister, we turn left and there's this addition to the Vons I'd never seen and it leads into the old Coromart. They annexed it. I guess they were able to buy it from the family. And I'm standing in a spot. I said, Gretchen, this spot right here? She says, yes. I said, the cash register was right there. And I stood right here. And that's where I first saw her. This unbelievably adorable blonde that I stalked to the movie theater. <laughs> and a man chases a woman until she catches him. <laughs> and I said, this little island, to realize that that girl, her grandmother was at my baby shower and bought my crib. And she was best friends with my godmother. And we got to lead both of them to the Lord. And they were both admiral's wives. And I said, I, how did God do that? And I was actually engaged to be married to somebody else and he still pulled it off when I tried to be an idiot. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. The foolishness of God is divine wisdom demanding faith. It boils down to one thing. Do you trust him or don't you? Because when you sign up for this ride, it is a lot of fun. But you only get scared when you doubt him. But when you know he's in complete control, it's like, let's do this again, right? What else are you gonna do? He's for you, he loves you. And I pray that maybe you didn't come today to be baptized. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward commitment. The Lord says, repent and be baptized. It is a public profession of faith. It's a commandment of God. Are you gonna take him at his word and do it? Or are you gonna live life on your own terms? That didn't work out too well for me. But that profoundly changed my life. And I pray it does for you as well. And I thank the Lord for the privilege to be a part of that in your life. That you will go into the water dead to yourself and come out alive to Christ, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He moved the bullseye to where you are. You've been reconciled to his father because he paid the price of your sin. And we give him the glory and we let the world know he's my savior and I'm his child and his servant. I pray you join us for baptism. And when they're baptized, the Bible says the angels in heaven rejoice. You guys better get loud. 
Come on forward if you want to get baptized. Lord, we thank you for those who are coming to make a public profession of faith. We ask that you would pour your spirit upon this place, that this would be a day they would never forget. As the trials and the fires come towards us and the challenges as the world seeks to remove you from the equation to be in charge that man would enslave but God comes to set free. Lord, I pray that you would embolden these folks that they will no longer be afraid for you have not given them a spirit of fear but a power, love, and a sound mind. And they are going to go into water in front of everybody at church. And yet, Lord, you hung on a cross, stripped naked and humiliated. And what held you there was your love for us. And so, Lord, baptism in obedience to you is an honor for us. And we thank you, Jesus. And it's your name. We ask your blessing on all who come today. Amen. Amen.